0: I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Uh, the July 1st session in Cloud 2030 was about the edge control plane and we had a robust conversation about the challenges of building edge and even really understanding what was available and a lot of it came back to, as always, data, data pipelines or data orchestration or data choreography. Um, and how influential that is in all edge topographies. So enjoy the conversation. We cover a lot of ground. The topic for the day is is edge and edge control plane. And we actually had um, sort of what I thought we would do as a stepping off point into edge um, from the work anywhere story, because work anywhere is great until... You realize that you're supposed to be connecting to a cloud, and you don't have connectivity. Right. Um, and so, the you know the, this this idea of us being able to work anywhere implies that we have compute everywhere or compute close to us. I think, especially as our daily work becomes more compute intensive. Well, Um, compute
1: everywhere is easier than network everywhere. And, I mean, so, so, and in fact, AT&T got caught. Well, I don't know if you can say got caught, but AT&T is telling the U.S. government that the rural areas don't need anything more than, than, Ten megabits per second upload at most, and they're telling, yeah, because they don't want to replace their uh, their copper with fiber, and they're telling their own investors that fiber is the way to go uh, with symmetric up and down, and that they're rolling it out to specific neighborhoods so the people who can pay, but. They don't I, want competition in the rural areas and they want well they've had I, I, fiber in my neighborhood for a year but you can't get it from them but Comcast uh, just put in fiber
2: um, I Rocky um, in Palo Alto we couldn't get fiber in many of our places and I, I didn't have it until moving here to San Mateo from at and I've got this symmetric um, and I, you know, I had to, I had to adjust my expectations on downloads. And you know, you'd start a big download and turn off and go, you know, walk down the down the hall to get a cup of coffee or something. No, it's right there. It's to, it's it's pretty pretty amazing. It's like, gee, what the first world really is like when you when you you have decent uh, broadband. But yeah, this—the notion that you know people in rural areas don't don't need more than ten megabits megabytes up—it's just crazy. Um, What
1: about the? Well, they're just saying that because they don't want the government to subsidize fiber that would be community owned instead of them. Because yeah, it's but, also been demonstrated that they charge more in areas where they don't have competition.
0: Yeah, exactly. But but would, so is network ubiquity, quality network ubiquity, something that we should plan into our designs? Or, you know, are we, do do we, this to me is one of the questions for Edge. You know, will we need to have more, you know, distributed infrastructure? Um, because we're not you know either the networks are never going to have enough bandwidth or the networks are the latency is always going to be a problem you know that that or the applications that we build are going to require more you know local compute infrastructure, which I tend to believe is yes, or is there a hope that we could have these stretched control planes where I've got a region and and everything's actually managed out of a a big data center somewhere so where does five g fit into this? And
1: where they do. Uh, five, uh, 5G makes a lot. Well, 5G is also still, uh, it, it's, it's still city stuff because you have to actually put your towers closer together because the frequencies are higher. So you need repeaters more frequently. So again, unless you get it, unless there's somebody who wants to feed rural, you don't get rural uh, on 5G. And so they fall back to 4G or 3G or sometimes even 2G. And so you really need to plan your edge control plane for a lossy environment where things drop off, and for multiple generations of technology. Uh, the, the IoT in farm area has been was one of the things that back in 2006, I was hearing hearing about, and we were doing. Uh, we had a control plane for Edge that had both uh, 2G and satellite, and we would fall back to satellite if there was no 2G. And satellite, you get 15, you get uh, 2K every 15 minutes back then. So you had to design your communications so they were really, really efficient because you couldn't get any more than a certain amount of com, And it really hasn't changed for the rural areas. You're still relying on satellite. There's more satellite out there, but it's still extremely pricey.
3: I I don't think that's true. I mean, I actually have a customer who's doing ag tech, right? We're we're deploying mesh networks into the fields, right? We're, We're interconnecting that back over, um, into the Wi-Fi components that they've got out there, and quite frankly, the data we're collecting isn't very much. I mean, an actuator right, a voice sensor. No, I'm just saying because there's not there's not a need to collect a lot of data.
1: But there is a need for control. For instance, well, they've they've designed it so that the control is local. They were doing GPS based uh, robotic farming back in 2006 with the big combines following GPS along their land, they really could have used 3G um, GPS, but they're relying on the edge being smart enough that they don't have to connect or send very much data. And so it's already been designed to deal with uh, very efficient low data rates to the control center outside of their local area. But yeah, and mesh and stuff, saying, that's it's, it's why they're so thing. advanced on that.
3: This wasn't, a, no one approached designing the solution saying bandwidth is limited.
4: <laughs> right. No.
3: They, they approached it saying we have to have connectivity within the field.
1: Right. It right. was limited so, back when they first started it. So this was the, uh, the state of affairs. It's the,
3: Sure. I, so I just so started it's with. The started with it.
1: It's the brownfield aspect.
3: Yeah, yeah. I said, I don't think it's true any longer, but I think the two other things you're kind of missing uh, when you start talking about these conversations. Right. Um, when I was doing a, a, a project with LG and we were looking at broadband um, uh, distribution and what percentage people had actually uptaken into it, um, even though high-speed broadband was available, like 90% of the people elected to go with a $10 a month plan. They weren't willing to pay more to get high-speed bandwidth. And so there's a consumer economic piece to this. And then there's also this, a business economic piece to it, right? If you're going in the US and you're building out um, data centers and you're trying to figure out where you're gonna turn a profit on these things, only 50 of the major METs matter. That's that's where like 98% of the revenue is generated from. And so now you're saying we have to distribute it to get to that, we'll pick a number, last 10%, 20%, 5%, right? We're going to basically make a massive infrastructure spend when that's not where the revenue flow comes from. Mm-hmm.
1: That's why the US has the laws for, for carriers as opposed to common carriers, as opposed to regular data. And we don't have common carriers for data as yet but the phone company, it was subsidized by the U.S. and the government, yeah, and the government wanted it everywhere, and it was considered national security. Hold, and hold, hold on, we though, we should do the with data.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, but I, we're we're getting on on a on a network perspective. Um, we have two hands, we have three hands raised, and and I think we're a little off on you know, some of the edge pieces. Joanne, I yeah. you know, I want to throw it back to you and then Mark and then
4: Rich. Um, Actually, Rich Rich before Mark. Oh, sorry.
5: Okay. Well, ladies before gentlemen, um, I guess I'll, I'll go down the two routes. One is um, I've been involved in projects, not only from an enterprise point of view, but also from the analyst point of view where, The last mile is always the issue. And like I'll give you, for instance, there's um, some very large US headquartered OEMs that have a lot of factories in Monterey and Monterey is known for two things, very bad comms because of the mountains around it and the issue of not being able to connect. So you adopt the five, five nines failover tactic of if I can do it. T1, you know, T3, T1, um, satellite, wireless, whatever means of communication I can use, even running wire between factories. If you have two halves of a factory that are in a valley and they're on two sides of the mountain, um, you have massive issues with satellite communications and everything else. But that said, from the edge perspective and the control plane side, um, the 5G only gets you to the telephone pole outside, it doesn't get you in. So that becomes part of the issue to be resolved. But from the control plane side, Mark and folks, what I heard yesterday from Mesa, which is uh, about 798,000 companies around the world, all in the supply chain side, is that their issue with the control plane is they haven't figured out how to identify, and this is a gap in the market, where the compute versus the storage side of edge have to be. And what they're looking for in the control plane is, okay, how do I make best use of my edge computing devices across multiple types of factories and in some very remote locations? Like one of the members is um, a gentleman from uh, Land Lakes, right, so they're agribusiness. And they're also in the pet food business and Purina and all of that kind of stuff. So they deal with a lot of remote locations. And what they've been doing in the past is using GPS coordinates to try and partner with like Caterpillar and other companies to figure out that edge plane. I look at it from another point of view. I think that we have a better way of doing that for them, both in the design side of the software and also the hardware configurations that we put in. Whether we do compute in one location and storage elsewhere or portable storage, um, we can design that in based on the flow of data, which is more likely what we're going to need to use for insight than anything else. That's just my two cents on how that control plane might take a design premise not how it's actually designed. But certainly it should yeah, last of, of
1: stuff. Very strong nods going on all around.
5: Yeah. I, I mean
0: part of part of what you're saying to me is that we get distracted talking about the network and what we really should be talking about is the data flow. The network is the Correct. data flow, but it's but we we're it's easy to talk about the networks. But what we're really talking about is where the data needs to be and when. Right. Um, okay. When
5: I, sorry to interrupt, but when right. I speak of data flow, I mean the flow of data between machine one and machine two, or machine one and human two, or any permutation thereof, where the design point needs to be what is the fastest, most efficient way to take the data and turn it into information which we can then turn into insight. So it's a choreography or an orchestration. I prefer choreography simply because it has to be flexible.
1: And choreography
5: can is, change, orchestrations can't.
1: And you've got data that's real-time, near real-time, and you've got data that can sit and wait till a point where there's more bandwidth, like during the evening when there's less transfer and stuff like that. And so you need to understand all the different types of data and when it needs to be uh, in the place it needs to be for analysis.
5: Correct. And you also need to understand that there has to be some level of, um, for lack of a better phrase, ETL that has to happen because at the protocol level, you've got 13 different protocols that you're working with for various types of machinery and also those used by humans. So it has to be human readable as well. And this has become a huge issue in terms of that, um, whether it's design patterns for cloud, whether it's design patterns for edge or the um, aggregation of both. And that's what I refer to as data flow and the choreography around that. To me, that's the most important part of the data plane. And it could be a very narrow lens that I'm using, but it seems to be the one that I'm hearing the most about from the supply chain communities, from the manufacturing communities. And that to me also sets the stage for AB tests to trickle down to the consumer side. Because very quickly we're getting in automotive and in retail, Uh, my IIOT has to now incorporate the IOT for feedback loops from the consumer. And that implies security, connectivity, and everything else. And so to me, those are the key factors at at the highest level of abstraction. It's the flow of data, uh, simply because of so many variants that are involved.
1: And along those lines, again, it's the... uh the store and forward versus what needs to be real time. And so yes. the real time needs to be uh, more along the lines of mesh and whatnot. And it's a totally different design from store and forward where you need the history, the logs, uh, and the information to aggregate beyond what you need right now to make a decision. Correct. So there's, Strategic versus tactic and the the tactical stuff is right now and the strategic stuff in some ways, it's not really that division, but it's yeah. And this is what fascinates some of what fascinates me about edge is getting this point right.
5: Well, I think there's right now and there's almost right now, because in some cases, the right now decision impacts the almost right now. And so you may only be storing for a millisecond before that data is actually being used or shipped. Yes. Whereas the the rest is I need it now and something's going to happen if I don't have it, whether it's on the predictive analytics side, the continuous intelligence side, or the, um, will I be subject to a 6 million unit recall because I'm off spec by a tolerance of 0.0001%. And by the way, the next iteration of, um, Laptops will have battery problems, as they did several years ago, where we're going to see massive recalls. The same is about to happen in 2021-22.
1: Great. Thank you. My battery's already swelling and breaking uh, my laptop from the swelling. (laughs) And this is an old one. Well, new
5: or old, the new ones will, will be overheating in a way that nobody ever expected.
1: What fun. Next hand. So... (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, Rich. Did you you are yeah. you, you have something to add or take us in a new direction?
2: Well, two things to add. I think when we were talking about the considerations, um, and you you posited the kind of one extreme, um, Rob, uh, that do we assume that network is always there? It's right. one of those things where i don't think you can for purposes of either business continuity or safety and i include in safety kind of security and privacy kind of combined there there's every reason to think that you have to design edge to some degree the way um Cloud native applications have to be designed for, um, you know, failure will happen. Something will something will break. There's a there's a fail fail over or there's a fail back that has to has to be incorporated in the in the infrastructure and the design the basic infrastructure. The second point that I wanted, so I wanted to put those two as high order considerations business continuity whether it's an emergency you know that's a natural emergency or some mal some bad actor that's that's uh, doing something the other issue is one of the considerations in going to these questions is to recall what are the scarce resources and I think, Joanne and Rocky, have both honed in on the notion of data. I mean, we think about, you know, categorizing infrastructure with regard to compute, network, storage, but there's a fourth, and that is the data that is being moved across the, the networks and the, and that is actually, actually occupying storage. and when thinking about control when thinking about the layering um, we've got more thought being given to differentiating a data plane from a control plane but I'm I'm not sure that this is what joanne was referring to or not but I almost think that there's a there's a something that's like a control plane, but it's for a different, it's there for a different purpose. And it's, it's more like, a, I'll, I'll call it an API plane. It's, it's some of the transformation and filtering and control that sits in front of and is used in stream. So those are, those are the kinds of approaches that I would kind of start out with. You know, what are your basic assumptions? What are our presuppositions and axioms about edge? And then move from there. It's in
0: the the API control plane comment that you make is interesting to me because I think you know when I think about the Kubernetes pieces um <laughs> in these right, that, that ends up being an API control plane. We've been we've been talking. You know, from our perspective on, you know, the infra—what we're starting to call an infrastructure pipeline—I'm watching the data pipeline pieces. Right? You have a code pipeline, you have an infrastructure pipeline, you have a data pipeline.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and it's it's interesting to me to think of the API, an API control plane separate from the infrastructure pipeline, but that might be the decoupling that we need to, or infrastructure control plane that we need to have.
2: You know when when we set up things for data centers themselves, there are you know there are there are levels of control. There are you know kind of mm, categories of control and 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 both administrative control, management control of the data center. Um, it starts with the you know basic architecture and and you know. IT usually you know in the old days locking certain things down like VPNs gateways so forth so there's a there's a authorization granted to a certain community of processes and people the individual making use of that of that data center and that infrastructure has a different set of controls that you know sometimes dips down into the network, but very often it used to, at least, you know, you didn't get a lot, you didn't get a lot of, um, didn't get a lot of control of what was going on in the network. It was pretty much locked down by whatever the organization was that um, is providing the resource to you. But there, there is truly a distinction there. And then the applications themselves, you know, being concerned with, what is actually being accomplished, what the data is that's being moved across the networks. And I, I think your point about Kubernetes is, is exactly where I'm, where I'm taking this kind of splitting <laughs> this notion of a control plane. And then I think your, yeah. your notion of a pipeline, Maybe the right way to to think about it. I, I think it makes a great deal of
0: um, we are we're about to start doing a whole bunch of, of work explaining infrastructure pipelines as a concept as beyond workflows um, because the, they're turning out to be different in our construction. Um, but the, there's something that you said that I would connect back to what Joanne said that I think is material. When we think about cloud, we don't data the data um, choreography is not something we have to worry about too much. It's not a first order concern because we assume storage mm-hmm. and network are basically elastic consumption or elastic consumption in the cloud. I
4: think, and
0: in in edge cases, it's ed, it, you know moving moving information about and processing information is not a automatic assumption.
2: It's you're at less everybody. automatic than you might think in cloud. I mean, when you've got multiple regions, when you've got when you when you're when the demands are for da, intelligent data replication and data replication yeah. that must be done not just for the purpose of transporting one app or you know one stack. Move it to somebody else. Move it to some other cloud, but actually ongoing. That starts to that starts to address some of the things that you're saying. So it's not existential. Uh, it hasn't been existential to cloud cloud design of application, but it's getting
0: interesting. Yeah. Pipelines is a, is a coming analogy, I think more and more. Mark, do you have, you want to take the next?
4: Yeah, I, um, uh, I started thinking about an answer to a question that is now, you know, 20 minutes old. Um, but, uh, I will, I will add that's, you know, that's how it works. Um, I'm not uh, complaining. Um, it's just, it may not be worth much as much as much now, but I, um, First one is is just to comment on um, something John said earlier about the study with LG. And I would argue that the, the uh, I would ask if that study was done pre-COVID because I think the answers would be very different today um, from the potential clients. Um, and I would argue that um, uh, many uh, 5G rollouts, this, at least uh, many that I've seen and, and where I've talked to people involved, um, have indicated that, um, that where performance can be something close to guaranteed, there are a significant number of people that are willing to pay more for that low latency and availability. Um, Korea was one of the first examples. Um, but beyond that, you know, I, I, I love the topic and I love the, the discussion around control plane and about data movement. I think, um, you know, the, the localization of network traffic is really the key long-term answer towards the ability to to provide some level of guarantee for um, edge and edge performance and data resiliency or or access resiliency. Um, It's a lot easier to put three or four connections to the same space in a city than it is to put three or four um, broadband connections from a town in Iowa back to a town in um, California or Ashford. and so figuring out the right way to manage to, um, you know, the establishment of local networks, whether that's with 5G or not, um, seems to be that the control plane needs to allow for some level of localization. But I also, I also think that we're, we're, and I don't know if there's a better way to talk about it, but I feel like we're talking about this edge problem um, as if we're in a position to solve it for a single deployment of edge for the world. And we're not, right? It doesn't matter if we could dream about it. I'm fine with dreaming about it, but we're not. And so what um, the the problem that John talked about earlier about, um, you know, low data requirements is going to be true for thousands. Uh, The question we don't understand is how do those thousands add up on top of each other from a backhaul standpoint? We also don't really have a, a, a firm grip on um, you know what it looks like when um, every every uh, house and every building and every city is considered smart. We don't have an idea of what that looks like from a total bandwidth requirement, or from a performance requirement, or from an emergency response requirement. We have to recognize that that localization may become a necessity, not even for some of the reasons that we care about, but for safety reasons because. You know, I've been talking about the notion for a couple of years now, about the notion of you provide a service to someone that once they get used to it, it's not a matter of just saying, oh, go back to the way you were doing it before. Right. Um, and, and a simple uh, analogy would be if you go into a store that used to have checkers at every counter and could handle, you know, a 100 a, a patrons a, a, um, every hour, um, you can't just say, oh, the, the automatic checkout isn't working, but patrons can keep coming. You've effectively got to shut the store down because you can't handle it with the one or two people that are still in the store even if they had the provisions to try and do it they wouldn't be able to and you would lose your you'd lose your tracking for your inventory and you'd lose your your security tracking and and all the other stuff that go along with it so all of a sudden the store is closed because of some sort of network traffic problem potentially right now what happens when uh, you know three out of 10 or five out of 10 of those things actually relate to providing for some form of safety, even assumed safety, right? I mean, I'm going to give something really graphically stupid, but um, in the United States, it's fairly common in most cities now to find paper to put on the toilet seat before you sit down, right? Now there's never actually been any evidence anywhere that I've seen that said, that paper actually provided any benefit because there was actually no risk other than getting your butt dirty. There was no risk to your health. Right. And, but how many people I would argue, I'm one of them. I'll be the first to admit I'm one of them. Once I started using those things, I can't fucking use a public toilet without putting something on the, on the seat. So safety becomes something of opinion, something of psychology and a reality. So the services around how to how to cross the street, um, how to drive a car in a town, how to use a building, um, all of those things with each passing day, those activities become safety issues because humans begin to forget their natural habit of assessing an environment before they use it. You know where most people get killed on the road? I, I shouldn't say most people, I don't know if that's true anymore. But I I looked at this about five or six years ago, um, actually a little bit longer than that. We were still in Union City, so it's more like 15 years ago. Um, And I looked at it because some people in the neighborhood got run over in a crosswalk. Mm -hmm. You know what I found out? More people die crossing the street when they know it's no, it's safe. So what happens when those safety guidelines, when everybody believes everything is safe, it's safe to get in the car, it's safe to get on the train, it's safe to use the elevator, it's safe to to walk in a crowded space, it's uh, safe to do whatever. What happens when those things become unreliable or unavailable, right? So um, Edge to me, for a lot of near-term obvious reasons, requires its own ability to manage the flow and availability of services through data. Mm -hmm. Right. And over time, whether we like it or not, we will become more, what do, what do the British call it? The British have a term for this, um, uh, where you know, the, the society has become so protective of the, of the humans, um, you know, nobody can get you
2: it. About nanny state?
4: Yes, yes. I mean, that's what we're <laughs> going to become, right? Every city will become the equivalent of a nanny state. Um, and, um, and we won't be able to live when the nanny state isn't available.
2: Uh, quick quick point you know what you when you look at some of the the issues that you're addressing there, Mark um, a couple of months ago I had a deep dive with some folks in infrastructure at Walmart and Walmart's a good example of an organization that establishes its, kind of service metrics around availability. And what they do is have, in addition to generation, power generators that will take care of the refrigeration and limited lights and also the availability of checkout counters, the the checkout. And they also have a limited time set up such that they can actually do transactions, take cash, swipe credit cards. Granted, there's a, you know, they're delaying the connectivity for a lot of them, but they can operate for 48, maybe even a a little bit longer than that without um, electric power, Coming in from the grid or data communications, and the whole point there is, they become, you know, they become a lifeline. They become a, they become a, um, an emergency resource that, um, and by they can only do that by virtue of the fact that they have a, a an ability to operate independently, in an in, in a disconnected mode for some length of time.
4: Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely right. I mean, that's everything that I heard when I talked to them as well. Um, and uh, uh, you know, so and when you think about, it, of course, Walmart has the advantage as well of you know that this may be a benefit in an earthquake or it may be a benefit in a flood or an, or a hurricane or something like that. But it's also that uh, similar to the way large scale data center campuses can afford to do things that a you know a five megawatt or a two megawatt facility can't is that. Um, they make so much money at the site on an individual site that having it down for two days is way more costly than whether or not they have a generator or, um, you know, some localized IT infrastructure.
0: But and we, we've talked about things like this in the past. You know, and it's funny because I was thinking about the the, the camper, the, the CTO advisor camper thing, right? You put an electric self-driving car in front of that camper and then all of a sudden... The, the computational facility of the car becomes your office computer when you're camped the battery of that camper becomes your 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 house power when you're camped right we're actually talking you know, edge edge has the potential this to me is and this is where autonomy really gets interesting we we could be on the cusp with electrification storage and compute of actually having real you know reuse of local resources right you know I, I think we've had conversations in the past where this your store you know to maintain the freezers might actually have battery power and generation backup that they could be selling to charge cars during normal business hours right um, there's a whole bunch of opportunities that we're moving into um, especially with a, with with compute being generic and storage being generic that we could actually see some convergence. From that perspective and it's not edge computing it's just in you know it's just in situ computing it's just in situ environments um, but but and this is where I, w- I I was actually thinking we would go with the control plane is in those cases you have enough power and processing to be autonomous. what we haven't worked out is the control planes that allow those systems to operate autonomously. We, we've sort of gotten used to moving all of this stuff to the cloud, letting service providers be the pros, and letting them, them handle all those situations. And they're very eager to do that for commercial reasons. Um, the thing to me that is really hard with the edge control planes is you have to have an autonomous control plane. It has to be local. can't count on the network. It, it can't, right? I, I don't care how good we get with our networking. Your That store, for all the reasons we just mentioned, has to be autonomous, which means the management of it has to be repeatable without IT professionals running it. Yeah. And so there, the, the paradox for edge that I think is really hard is that we have to have a distributed control plane that allows us to have, but is not a stretched control plane. It's distributed autonomous, so those distributed federated control planes. To me, that's the breakthrough that's missing from an edge, edge perspective.
2: The only organ, the only group that seems to be taking that on. Rob is the smart grid people in electric power. Mm. Smart grid, smart grid work. It's not done yet, but there's a there's a lot of work being done in what you almost might think of as um, kind of a, a modular smart grid, where there is a kind of a smallest unit that can be. Self managed, at least for some period of time without being connected to the rest of the grid.
1: And I think the autonomous vehicle community is also doing that. It's just you don't see as much of it.
2: Yeah.
5: Uh, Rob, Actually, can- if I, sorry, just, just to, to add on, ASRG is the group, and um, uh, there's a lot of work going on that's very similar to the Um, smart grid group. Uh, This is for autonomous vehicles and vehicles in general on security, on autonomy. I'm part of the ASRG, and I'm about to become an industry advisor for the Sentinel Security, uh, for cybersecurity, for vehicles. So the automotive industry has taken this up, and there are actually two ISO standards that you might want to look at with regard to that um, and how they're defined. One is predominantly around cybersecurity and malevolent actors, and goes back to ties into this notion of pipeline. My comment on pipeline is, doesn't control plane have to come before the pipeline so that you could catch the malevolence and any bad actor or anything else from the security point of view? But also from the autonomy so point of view, I think you'll find that there's a lot of um, learning that you could take and reuse and leverage from those two groups. In automotive for the control
0: plane for EDGE. That's a convergence. We Sorry for the
5: interruption.
0: That. Great, John, do you wanna, we're, we're about five minutes from the top. Do you wanna, do you, you have a,
3: a topic for us to close this
2: out? Uh,
3: I don't know, I got several thoughts. Um, I, I, I think, you, you kind of said one piece to it is we, we always talked about these near edge compute for control planes into it. And the reality check is every time we got into it, if it was missing critical, it was on site. Right. No one's going to tolerate a, a network component to it. And so I think a lot of these things that talk about near edge compute use cases are wishful thinking um, because mission critical applications will be on site. No one is going to basically run your airplane from a network on ground. So. Right. So I think that's that's um, one piece coming into it. I think the second piece comes into it when you contrast Walmart, right? Walmart has scale. Walmart can afford to do those things. Um, and so I think they're different than most of the other use cases we looked at because every time we looked at a use case, um, it wound up being constrained by the economics. There wasn't enough business revenue to justify the deployment of the edge infrastructure into it. Um, So I think you've got to look at the economics of these things because we talk about these things as if it's ubiquitous, but there is an economic component to it. Um, And when it comes to edge control plane, right? um, The problem we had with edge control plane is the cost of deploying the control plane often exceeded the cost of deploying the application. Yeah. Right? So it's not a, can we do it? it? It's another one of those things of the cost just didn't add up to solving the problem with it. Um, so I think I think it's got to be really these conversations have been be grounded in the real world. And then I guess the, the last piece of this I would say, um, you know, when it when it comes to is the is the data pipeline part of the the um, you know which comes first? The answer is it's all part of the systems architecture. If I had to manually provision my data pipeline, I'd do it right. So there's a several components to the system architecture, and and which comes first is a, really to me a question of how do we automate it. Um, and I guess the last one I'll disclose. When I look at a lot of use cases we keep talking about today, and I'm going like they're they're really not painful today. And most of the ones we found where they were painful uh, were volumetric, you know, and and you know, some Cupertino phone company had a problem because they use HTTP long poles. Well, change your system architecture, change your software architecture, and that problem goes away. However, having said that, I think what you should really be thinking about is let's talk, you know, five years down the road, 10 years down the road, where instead of having a couple of billion devices connected, we have a couple of trillion, right? That that to me is where these problems really start to take root. So I don't think it's an immediate how do we solve these things? Yeah, there's fringe use cases, right? Like like rural manufacturing, other pieces to that. Um, And I'm sure those are real problems for people today, but I don't think they're going to become systemic enough for society until we start getting to critical mass and devices. I'll leave it there.
0: I I agree with you on how do we manage these things. I, I don't know that there are simple solutions on on the pieces we're seeing. Like we're some of this is to me very self inflicted um, pain. Um, where the idea here is that um, vendors just aren't collaborating together. So we're 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 working with some telcos and helping them build and they're insisting on stretch control planes because they don't want to put to your point the control plane overhead on a on a tower they they want to they're 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 trying to keep the they're they're like okay i can do a regional control plane and stretch it and we get it that's fine but the like they're talking to us to control the compute but then the people who are selling the switches are like well we have a solution you can't you can't mix those the switches are its own control plane and the compute is its own control plane. We're talking about two devices. Um, and so the, the the part of the problem that stands in our way for a lot of these things um, really comes back to, you know, the fact that our vendors are building their solution, selling their solution, and they're, we're still siloing these things together from an edge perspective. I mean, Joanne, I know you're helping people overcome this and build... Integrated solutions, but when when we're looking at the market, it's you know network storage and compute being completely different, isolated vendors. If you bring in three vendor, you know a, a, multi, a multi multiple vendors in any one of those categories, now you're totally off the reservation from building a real control plane.
5: Um, <clears throat> I think the way I'm seeing it play out, I'm not saying you're wrong. But I, I do agree with your point. Um. I think where I'm seeing it play out in a more collaborative sort of format is within industry groups. And I know that that's not necessarily the best place or the worst place, but industry itself is coming together in different verticals to look at these problems and say, we need a solution, period. And I think that's a better route than the vendors trying to do it on their own, because you all see a problem of a corporation from a different lens where your piece of it fits in. If it's a group of companies in the same industry, let's not call it the Walmarts of the world, but rather their supply chain or their distribution chain, that's where you're gonna see the most bang for the buck in terms of getting things to a point of being able to uh, look at an industry standard or look at uh, a coming together of all the different pieces of pie from each of the vendors i'm seeing it in automotive i'm seeing it in electronics i'm also seeing it in retail um and in smart cities to rich's point about the grid grid is leading a lot of the work but the smart city centers and you know with no disrespect to my american friends we have initiatives here that are geared towards pushing people together through the university systems of you know the um um Uh, private-public collaborations, where it's pushing industry vendors to come together at one level with government, not necessarily around funding, but around new projects and new industries. Like we're doing it for automotive. We have five now hubs of AI simply designed for smart cities. And these are like Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Vancouver. Those are hubs where people are throwing money into the arena to say, go build a solution that can be ubiquitous across the country. So, you know, I just put on the thing, take a look at the Mobile Edge X platform in terms of control plan and in terms of this conversation only. Uh, Not that it's the best or the rightest, it's a vision of what I think you're articulating and I think could be leveraged into a fuller design um, I also don't disagree with John's point. I mean, some of the cases that I get happen to be real life, uh, mostly from previous clients or places that I've had roles. Um, but they're big companies with big problems. And I think the difference is also geographically, where is the problem coming from? And that also goes into the design of the solution plane. Because when you look at control plane, you need to take the the blinders off of geographics. Like for example, Mark, you, you should probably, I'll, give, I'll send you a link to the Spesa group because this is companies from around the world. And what I heard yesterday as just one example, and I'm sorry that we're over time, is um, in parts of Asia that have not yet adopted a cloud, they're much more prone to adopting edge because in certain regions edge would the connectivity is better and that would give them a better way to go so these are these are more industrial based they're not all manufacturers some of them are are nrf um companies as well but it's um a hub where you can find this kind of information that is real world that people are actually dealing with and I think that that informs the that uh, control plane design quick in question, a much quick broader, broader way. Go ahead. Yeah.
2: Question: How how yeah. much participation is there from the significant vertical the, the players them, the, the customers themselves the um, the, the, the potential beneficiaries of this design, not the manufacturers, not the service providers of, of the technology, but the consumers of it.
5: Well, I think the manufacturers and the suppliers are the consumers of it and driving it.
2: Um, They're driving
5: it because these are solutions that they need. They need it.
2: Right. And, you know, I, I, I completely agree that you have to incorporate some of the biggest Consumers of a technology to get the standardization you need. It's, it rarely works without that kind of pull from that kind of demand.
5: Right. Um, I think th- there are other groups that are looking at this kind of standardization that run anywhere from the Industrial Internet Consortium, which is a global player, to the Thread Group, which is a massive group now. Uh, you know, very arm related, et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at these ecosystems as they're being developed, they're, um, they're quite robust in, in some cases and quite lacking in others. And where people like me come in is we go, no, wait a second, why are you reinventing the wheel when some of this other stuff already exists? You should be able to leverage it and build upon it. But the consumer rich, to your point, is actually going forward, you and I. We yeah. are the consumers of this technology.
2: I'm I'm hearkening but we're back, not part of I'm hearkening back to the days when electronic mail was new. So I hate yeah. myself. But one of the big <laughs> things was um, we had two two groups of protocols that standards yeah. being developed. But in point of fact, all of the Value-added networks had their own email services that they were trying to, you know, sell to big companies at that point in time, and they did not interconnect with one. Right. They did not interoperate, and one of the things that we did in the with the creation of the Electronic Mail Association in the eighties was purposefully incorporate into the group. The big consuming industries, American Electronics Association, uh, America, the, uh, American the um, American aviation and and those communities, and they came in and they basically we basically used them as the lever. We they basically got on board and said, unless you utilize the standards that are already being written up. For interoperability and interconnectivity, we will not use your services if you do right. not. And it was amazing how quickly AT&T, MCI, and the small folks as well got on board with interoperability, mostly around addressing and directories. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, what, no, that's what you have I, to do.
5: Well, you know, I care, I call it the carrot and stick play. And it worked extremely well for IBM and Fadi Shahadi with RosettaNet way back when, I think 2003, 2004. And it literally got to the point where the big Goliaths, um, I realize that's an oxymoron, um, the Goliaths turned around and said, you either do it my way or you no longer have my business, period. And I'm seeing the same thing unfolding with cloud, with Mm -hmm. Uh, edge with certain types of technology, certain varieties within those categories of technologies. And that's why part of my issue with the notion of data pipeline and with choreography is because unless the industry that it's designed for, or multiple industries that it's designed for, heavily participate, the carrot and the stick will no longer work. Exactly. Because no, it's a- they will have cloud and edge are two areas of technology that are far more specific than B2B was.
2: Exactly. And they're, they're becoming more existential for these. People. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Folks. I, I, yeah,
0: we, we need to wrap This was great.
5: I'm going back to Canada day. You all have a great 4th of July. <laughs> I'm going to go celebrate my holiday now.
0: Enjoy. Happy Canada
1: day. Happy
0: Canada. Happy Canada. No, no, no meeting next week. I took just
3: as a, no meeting next week.
1: John. okay. Wait, what were you gonna say?
3: Huh? Well, okay. I was gonna say? No, I was gonna say just to put in people's mind, leave for the next one, is is I, I argue the edge compute. Um we talk about it this way, I argue the battle's already over. It, it's it's Microsoft, it's AWS. They're deep enough in their data centers to cover most use cases. So we talk about standardizing stacks. I think you've got three or four major players that are the stack.
0: Oh. That is something to talk about for next time. Yep. All right, everybody,
3: have a good one. Ruminate
0: on that on your our respective and have a good holidays. Forth also, I hope you enjoyed this session about edge control planes. We spend a lot of time thinking and talking about edge and edge control planes, and how edge is going to get rolled out. And this was a good topic. Uh, I think we summarized a lot of a lot of insights. And, you know, John really left us on this topic we need to get into more, which is how the hyperscale cloud vendors are going to uh, try to own the edge. And if that's what we want and how Thank we can Thank you for listening uh, to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. Because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding.
2: It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.